You are listening to the Optimal Performance Podcast, sponsored by Natural Stacks. If you're into biohacking, performance, or getting more out of life, this is the show for you. For more on building optimal performance, check out OptimalPerformance.com. You were looking for a way to change your life. You got it. I kind of think in some ways, selfishly, that it should remain a secret because it is such an advantage. Natural Stack. Start optimizing your mental and physical performance. Optimize yourself. All right. Happy Thursday, all you optimal performers. Welcome to another episode of the Optimal Performance Podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Muncie, and I want to welcome in today's guest, Patricia Churchland, and we're going to call her Pat today. Pat, hello, and thank you for sharing some time with us today. Oh, hi. No, it's a great pleasure to be here. So we're thrilled to have you. Uh, as I told you before we hit record, we love talking about the brain, um, what makes us tick. I'm going to introduce you to our listeners. Um, so for you guys listening, uh, Pat is a professor emerita at, uh, of philosophy at UC San Diego. Last year, she was elected a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. She's the author of four solo books, um, four more collaborations, and she's the subject of two other books. So um, really cool guest, and uh, hopefully we cover a lot of stuff that's helpful to a lot of you guys today. Um, Before we dive in, a little bit of housekeeping. Uh, As always, go to OptimalPerformance.com to see the video version of our podcast along with links and resources. We'll have links to the books that we talk about that Pat has written. We'll have anything else that we talk about as a resource. We'll have a link for you to find. Um, And also, if you haven't done so, while you're on the site, make sure you join our VIP club of optimizers so that you can stay up to date with everything that we're bringing you to help you optimize your life. Um, And... One more thing, share the Optimal Performance Podcast. If you guys like this, if you listen to the podcast and it helps you, think about somebody else you know who will benefit from this, share it with them, and let's help the world become a smarter, healthier, happier place. So with that, let's dig into this. Um, Pat, the the brain is is an amazingly complex and and fascinating organ. What drew you to uh, a lifetime of study in, in neuroscience? Well, you know, I think probably like most people, I wondered as a child about whether other people see colors the way I do or whether they have the same emotions that I have. Do they feel angry in just the same way and so forth? And, of course, eventually, as I grew up and as I began to understand more biology, I realized that these are questions that we can approach to a degree behaviorally. But ultimately, these are questions about how the brain actually is. And so then eventually I I studied philosophy at first because I thought that was going to help give answers. But it turns out that philosophy is really not in the business of giving answers. It's sort of in the business of asking questions and and so on. So eventually I I studied the brain itself at the medical college in, in Winnipeg in Manitoba when I was a junior professor. Do you think the background in philosophy, learning to ask questions, made you a better scientist? Well, it's, that's hard to know, really. But I think that it certainly drove the hunger for um, wanting answers and, and wanting to see how they cohered together in, in a real whole. But, of course, the more I got into neuroscience, the more I discovered the beauty of the experimental method and how ha- asking the right question in the right experimental way is, in a way, the most beautiful thing of all. I couldn't agree more. That's, that's really cool. And, and you know, just to remind you, you are speaking to people who love asking questions and, and getting answers. So uh, if you guys, you guys listening, this is exactly why I'm so excited for this episode. Um, so I, I want to cut right to it, Pat. If, if we can go right to the heart of uh, what's the biggest takeaway that you've learned in your career when it comes to the brain? Or, or maybe another way of saying it is uh, what's the biggest eye-opening revelation to you Well, there were so many. I mean, certainly early on, I think I was incredibly struck by the split brain data. The fact that 
um, that huge pile of nerves that connects the, the two hemispheres can be cut. And you really don't notice anything very much unless you test it in the right way. And when you do that, you make this amazing discovery, which is that one side of the brain can know things or be aware of things that the other hemisphere is, does not know and is not aware of. And that seemed to me to be absolutely astonishing. The other thing that I think I focused on early in my career, and I mean, and, and this was really a, a result that came in the 1970s out of Wilder Penfield's surgery in Montreal. And he was interested in epilepsy also. And he found that when he had the patient's skull open and he could electrically stimulate little parts of the brain, here, there, there, that the person would suddenly remember something that they hadn't thought of in years. And I thought, I mean, it's all very normal to us now. But at that time in the 1970s, the idea that you could just stimulate a piece of the brain electrically and suddenly there is somebody remembering riding their horse uh, across Fort Churchill, um, it was astonishing to me. And but, but so many, I think, of the data that came out of these early studies of human patients uh, really captured my interest. And, and then, of course, once you get into the nuts and bolts of it, then a very different kind of excitement takes hold. Okay. So before we talk, into, talk about some of the stuff that you've written about recently, for our listeners, kind of elaborate on, on how that stimulation works you know, to, to kind of pull to the forefront a memory that you know, maybe uh, was was not forgotten, but kind of lost in the filing system. Yeah, how do you know? How does that work? The the interesting thing, Ryan, is that we still don't know. We actually don't know. I mean, except that, of course, we do know that neurons uh, depend on voltage changes across their membranes in order to communicate with one another. That's what it's all about. Um, but we don't really know how it happens that when Penfield stimulated, um, you got that effect. We're still really at very basic issues in memory in trying to understand actually how the whole thing, how it works, how information is stored. And then it's not just that you have this temporary hold on information, but then it gets consolidated. And and here is one of the amazing things that has come to light in the last 15 years. What we know now is that the consolidation takes signals from this deep structure called the hippocampus, and the consolidation happens in the cortex, and it happens during deep sleep. And so part of the reason why we need deep sleep is that we need to consolidate our daytime memories. So, I mean, for a long time, you know, we really had no idea. Why are people spending a third of their lives in sleep? And the sleep research in the last 15 years has been absolutely extraordinary in showing this amazing link between the general health of the brain and sleep, but also between learning and memory and sleep. That's really cool. So, uh, now, I guess, when you start talking about the consolidation of you know basically going from short term to, to long term. Can you talk about things that we can do to other than sleep to facilitate that that long term storage? Well, interestingly, of course, sleep is the big thing, and it turns out um, actually that even short naps or taking a break. So if if for example you're reading a scientific paper and you get to the end of it, instead of then going on to the next one, you should probably just take a break. And, you know, walk outside, take a little, you know, five-minute walk, and then come back, and then go on to the next one. So that, that's a really important thing. And, and the other thing that we know now, and I mean, behaviorally, this has been known for a long time, and that is learning in batches is always better than learning in a clump. Mm -hmm. So why is that? I mean, behaviorally, it's been shown again and again and again. Well, it turns out it really has a very deep explanation. 
even deeper than the level of the neuron in a way, <laughs> having to do with gene expression. So, of course, to really learn something, there has to be a structural building in the neuron. Well, where does the structural stuff come from? And the answer is gene expression. And gene expression is controlled by CREB, which is a regulatory gene. So the dynamics of CREB are such that it turns out that at the behavioral level, so all the way from, you know, deep in the genes to the neurons to the behavior, it turns out that batch learning, you know, in, in, in separate batches is always better. Um, so I think that's a really interesting thing that we, we now understand, and it really has to do with the dynamics of these genes. Funny. Yeah, it's, I'm kind of laughing and nodding along as you, as you give that answer. I'm thinking about, you know, historically, you know, great thinkers, you know, like Einstein and Isaac Newton, and you can go as far back as you want. I think there's, there's at least based on what they've written in their journals that, you know, that they worked similar to that. And, and that they, yeah. didn't, they didn't follow what we now, uh, I guess, have become patterned into. And, and, and I think we'll talk about this maybe now or, or later with, mm. with kind of being conditioned and having these habits of, you know, the eight hour work day or the straight yeah. through school day. And, yeah. and even, even more so with technology and, and, you know, most of us get our information from, either a television that has a news ticker and a sidebar and a person talking right. or Facebook news feeds or Twitter where you may read a scientific article, but then you're bombarded with advertisements That's and right. this and this right. and this. So right. I guess it, it, would that, would your advice to that to be still, you know, Oh yeah. Turn read, it off. Turn <laughs> it off. Leave it alone for a while. Give your crab a chance to build up so you can build some structures so you can remember what you really want to remember. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there has been some work. Dan Levitin has done work on sort of information overload. And part of what happens in information overload is that we get stressed. And what that means is that the levels of stress hormone go up. And generally speaking, that for long periods of time is not a great thing for your brain. Right. So, so you might think you're slacking off, but actually from your brain's point of view, you're giving it a chance to reorganize and get itself ready for, for the next one. And so some of the things that we used to think were, you know, slacking off or being lazy, like sleeping eight hours a night. I remember in college, we all <laughs> tried to sleep less, right? Yeah. And that was wrong. And we all tried to cram at night. That was wrong. And now we know it's wrong for neurobiological reasons. It's quite lovely. Yeah. And, and another, I, I, one of the, one of my favorite books that I've ever read is Essentialism and in, in doing some research for this episode, I saw that, that you're kind of connected to, um, I guess, reductionism or, or, or kind of doing more to or doing less to get more accomplished, being more productive. So that may be yeah. something that's right up your alley. But in that book, they talk about how actually going out and playing is great for your brain. And it's, oh, yeah. it, it's, 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 it's basically re it's required to be at your best, you know, physically and mentally. It absolutely is. And Jörg Panksepp, who is a neuroscientist, um, and he, he sort of worked on, on the importance of play many, many years ago. Nobody took him seriously. But we now realize that play is extremely important, and all mammals do it. Even my old dogs, I have two golden retrievers who are now 10 years old, they still like to play. And it... And you can see the kind of joy and release and so forth that comes about in playing. And it doesn't really matter what the play is, although we're pretty sure that physical play is a good thing if you can manage it. Um, but, but, yeah, it's really good for the brain. So if you want to optimize your brain, you, you need sleep, you need to play. All those things that we thought, you know, we're wasting our time. No, turns out not. <laughs> there, there really is uh, something to be said for for balance and, and being well balanced. Yes, there really, really is. And uh, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy, as we used to say. And and so it seems. Yeah. It's, it seems to be true. Very cool. So now, now your most recent book is is touching a nerve, and and it explores the connection between our brain and ourself. Mm. 
So how are they separated? I guess for, for somebody who maybe hasn't picked up the book, hasn't read that. Sure. Well, we tend to think of ourselves as a sort of single thing that's the same throughout our lives that somehow maybe is related to the brain but isn't really part of the brain. But I think increasingly what we're understanding now in neuroscience is that this sense of ourself changes a lot over time through development, through adolescence, through adulthood. And that it has different components and that part of the brain's job is to kind of construct this sense of self that is so powerful. And there are different components to it. So a very important component is knowing that a certain action, like a movement of your hand or knocking over the coffee cup, knowing that you did that. That's a big computational job for a brain, and it has to keep track all the time of what it is that I'm doing and to update the causal effects of my action. Another very important part, of course, has to do with autobiographical memory. Now, the interesting thing is that we think, and and many philosophers have thought in the past, that if you were to lose your autobiographical memory, that you wouldn't even have a sense of self. You'd be nothing. Not true. It turns out, and we know this now from several patients, but I'm going to speak about the Damasio patient, Boswell, who lost all autobiographical memory as a result of um, uh, herpes simplex encephalitis, a disease that caused inflammation and destruction in his brain. So Boswell... uh, I I met Boswell in Iowa when the Damasios were still there. And you go into the room and you say hello. And he's very presentable, very cordial, very courteous. He doesn't seem like he has no sense of self. But if you ask him, so Boswell, uh, were you ever married? He'll say, well, you know, it's hard to say. He really doesn't know. He was, and he had children. And if you ask, did you have children? Oh, children, children. Well, you know, it's hard to say. And so on. He knows he was born in Iowa, and that's all the autobiographical memory he has. And he can't learn anything new. So he has about a 40-second span of knowledge. So if he's distracted, so... Antonio Damasio will distract him from talking to me and then bring him back. And it's like he's never met me. It's all, of, oh, hello, hello. How very nice of you to come. And again, it's the same. But he has a, a sense of himself. It's not like there's nothing. Right. And, and the kind of habits of courtesy and kindness and camaraderie are all still there. And... So when people say to me, well, philosophers have shown that if you lose your autobiographical memory, you have no self, you know, empirically, it's just not so. Now, his sense of self is diminished, of course, but it's not like there's nothing. So there's more to us than our autobiographical memory or our sense of where our body position is. There's also those habits that we are sort of aware of, that we express in behavior. There's our consciousness. Boswell was conscious. And he had kind of a limit on what he could be conscious of because he couldn't draw on memory. But, you know, he could play a game of checkers. He called it bingo, but hey, you know, he could still play checkers. So, so then what is it that makes us who we are? I think there are many components. So part of it, of course, is these deep temperamental and characterological things that we do tend to have for long, long periods of time. The things that we tend to prefer, that we like to read the newspapers with the music in the background, or that we like certain kinds of movies, and so on and so forth. Those are all kind of characterological features. But those deep habits for which all of the subcortical structures are really important, those are part of us too, but we don't, we can't exactly consciously access them, 
but they do manifest themselves in behavior. And the very habits that we use in talking, I mean, look at me, here I am, I do this every time. I can't seem to talk without moving my hands. And the cadences I notice are much the same and so forth. It's not something that I consciously say, this is what I must do. <laughs> right. It's just what, and I know that I'm me because I know in part how I behave. It's a very complex thing, but I think it's there in dogs. It's there in all mammals. It's probably there in all birds and probably in some reptiles, maybe all reptiles, some sense of self. Okay, so let me ask you this then. If, if you're saying maybe some animals don't have that, is it because... I, uh, yeah, I mean, all animals kind of have to know where they stop and the world begins. I mean, we know this even for fruit flies. Right. Right, and they have to know that when this leg is twitching, this is my leg, that's his leg. Um, and so they all have to have that really deep and basic sense of my bodiness and... Me here, world out there. Yeah. So do, do we know, like from a science standpoint, do we know what that is? No, we don't. I mean, we, I think we have bits and pieces of it. And we do know that in certain neurological conditions, as in, for example, schizophrenia, sometimes those boundaries change. And so I remember once a woman who, who was really very articulate telling me that during the florid phase of schizophrenia that she had kind of lost the sense of where she stopped and the world began. And she said it was as though I knew that I could move that vase on the other side of the room with my thoughts, but of course she couldn't. Um, but in any case, we know that that it it is modifiable, shall we say, in in certain kinds of ways. And I think under under drugs that happens under LSD, for example, or peyote, that people sometimes have this experience of having themselves be absolutely huge and floating above the the room and so forth. Um, and it's a kind of body or self hallucination. Yeah. So when that happens on those specific drugs, do we know the mechanism of action? Do we know where it's no. affecting? No. We know that subcortical structures are extremely important, but so are cortical structures. But it's a very, but it isn't, it isn't something where I can say we've made a lot of progress. I mean, I think in neuroscience, we've made a lot more progress in, say, understanding visual motion, right? right? And that is uh, how, how the brain, the visual brain processes motion. But I think it, we know some of the bits and pieces, and we know that these subcortical structures are absolutely important because they care so much about the timing and they rely on the timing of events, brain events and events in the world to know whether or not it was me that caused that sound or whether it was something else. So how can our listeners use that information in their daily life? What can we implement? How can we implement that to live more balanced, more fulfilled, happier? Well, it's an interesting question, actually. And I've wondered and thought a lot about that. And one of the things I, I do in my own life is a lot of yoga. And, of course, through yoga, I've learned to meditate. And it, because as, at the end of the yoga practice, we always go into Shavasana and we learn to meditate. And and my teacher used to quote Iyengar saying, you know, the meditate, the shavasana pose at the end, the corpse pose is the hardest of all because it's so hard to make your mind quiet. And yet we have found that meditative techniques are really, really useful for many things. And they are useful for helping to maintain that sense of balance, for keeping... Um, appropriately low levels of stress hormones. And, they, and because meditation does lower the level of stress hormones, it also lowers our feelings of anxiety, which, of course, are really an expression of, of stress hormones. 
And it turns out to be very important, for example, in controlling certain kinds of unwanted habits like drug habits and addictions and certain habits that people want to break. Uh, habits maybe having to do with food or, or certain kinds of uh, behavior, habitual things that they do that they want to break. Now, we don't know exactly why meditation does that. And there has been significant work done focusing on the brain itself and what changes when people go into meditative states. And we sort of know what those changes are, but we don't know the link between those changes that we see and why these beneficial effects seem to result. Fairly often enough that I take it scientifically seriously. That's really interesting. Let me ask you a question based on that answer. So in our most recent podcast, the one that came out last week, we had two retired Navy SEALs on, and these oh. guys are using float tanks to treat concussions and traumatic uh-huh. brain injuries. Uh-huh. They actually got with advanced brain monitoring and came up with special um, hardware that they can wear in the saline environment and you know, obviously salt, water, and electricity don't mix. So they made special monitoring. Uh, and what they're discovering is that in a, in a TBI, you have damaged neural pathways. And in the float tank, with sensory deprivation, the, the brain can relax and can reroute or rewire itself. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think that um, to a degree that is what's happening with meditation in these uh, people who are changing habits or behaviors? Yeah, no, that's a really, really interesting question, and I don't really know the answer, but I, I guess I'd have to say it wouldn't surprise me if, if the two things are linked um, because – in, in both cases, part of what the overlap may consist in, but this may only be part, is the lowering of stress hormones mm-hmm. and the general lowering of activity in general. I mean, one of the things, of course, is you know that's so difficult about meditation is to kind of uh, turn off all that chatter in your brain mm-hmm. and to learn to just focus on something that is simple like your breath. And when you do that, you do have this, these powerful feelings of letting go and of, of drifting and of floating and, and so forth. And then I also think that part of what happens in the meditative process is not just lowering of stress hormones. I actually think that the pleasure centers are stimulated. So I think that I, I think that there's probably, although I don't know that this has been seen, I think there's effects in the nucleus accumbens and in the other uh, related subcortical structures like the ventral striatum. So I think it's act, you're actually getting deriving pleasure at a fairly maybe lowish level, but significant. Okay. And I think that's got to be really important, especially if those same structures are the ones that are impaired in addicts. So in the case of addicts, we know the ventral striatum, this deep structure in the basal ganglia, is messed up. And, and to unmess it, it may be that increasing pleasure in this very special circumstance is part of what enables addicts to use meditation to get, make progress in their addiction. I mean, to a degree, I'm, I'm no expert in addiction, but to an degree, isn't the act of whatever that addiction is in some way the pursuit of pleasure? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Because part of uh, what happens in the in the first occasions of drug taking is that the pleasure centers are really hit big time. Um, but then what happens is on many other later occasions. Um, there is always a stress response. So even on the first occasion, you have the pleasurable response, you have a a brief stress response, and then you're back to baseline. As time goes on, what happens to that stress response? And the answer is it gets much deeper as the pleasure wears off, and it lasts much longer. And moreover, the pleasure response, or as they say in science, the hedonic response is actually less. So so after a while, all the addict really is trying to do is 
the baseline. Now, if this huge stress response is part of the story, then it may be that meditative techniques, if they can, lower stress responses can be helpful in dealing with it. So you've said stress quite a few times, and I think yeah. our listeners, fairly educated, I think, but the general sure. public hears stress. We know it's bad, but I mean, what? I guess, can you elaborate on what's going on in the brain when we're under stress or when the stress response is stimulated that will maybe negatively impact cognitive function or behavior? Well, stress hormones are released into the brain, and they will have an effect on the neurons themselves. And that's a good thing for a short period of time. So if I am off in the field and I'm walking around with my dogs and the bull begins to charge, I need to get the heck out of there. And I can't just sort of leisurely say, you know, good afternoon, Mr. Bull, and walk off. I got to move. And that's, of course, what the stress response is all about. But then I have to go back to baseline. If I am chronically stressed, then brain damage begins to happen or brain changes begin to happen that are not facilitating good cognitive functions. And so this kind of relates to what we were talking about earlier with regard to the importance of play. You know, the the fact that you can have this pleasurable interlude where you just, you know, goof off is very important in kind of getting the brain back to where... Uh, it's not in this state of of heightened fight or flight response. Yeah. Awesome. That's really cool. Um, so let's shift gears a little bit. We'll kind of bridge yeah. into um, your book. I guess it was 2009, uh, or I'm sorry, 2011. Correct when you did this was uh, Brain Trust. Yeah, yeah, Brain yeah. Trust. So, so that that one is is more focused on on neuroscience and morality. Yeah, that's right. And that was, you know, that whole connection was a real surprise to me. Okay. And the surprise came about because I was at a lecture at the Salk Institute, and Larry Young from Emory University came to talk, and he told us this uh, about this experiment, which I found totally amazing, and this had to do with prairie voles. And it turns out that prairie voles bond for life or at least many of them do. And this is very different from montane voles, which don't. And so the question was, what's the difference in the brain? And his lab and other labs had looked at it, and they had found that the difference had to do with a very specific chemical and its receptors in a very specific part of the brain. And so the basic story is that in this part of important part of the pleasure system or the reward system called the nucleus accumbens, the density of receptors for oxytocin is much higher in prairie voles than in montane voles. Well, maybe that's relevant. Maybe it is. How do you test? You block the receptors. And what happens when you do that? Then they don't bond. So many other experiments were done to sort of really get beyond mere correlation to seeing whether this was causal. And it does seem to be causal. And so I thought, my God, this is amazing. Here is a behavior that we might have thought was very sophisticated, you know, bonding for life and staying together. The male guards the nest, helps take care of the babies. And yet it's all about oxytocin and receptors. So I began to to think about that and to track the research on oxytocin and ask why we see moral behavior or very highly social behavior in mammals, but not in reptiles, for example. And the answer seemed to be that it was all about food. Now, as you know, for a long time, evolutionary biologists thought, how could could there ever be a gene for altruism? Because if some guys had it, the other guys who didn't have it would quickly take advantage of them, and that would be the end of altruism. But it turns out that caring for others has as its causal origin the need for food. Well, how can that be? The answer is quite 
funny, actually, and that is that when warm-blooded animals appeared, they need about 10 times as much food as cold-blooded animals, gram for gram. Huge ecological pressure. It means you're going to have to be smart and you're going to have to eat a lot. And so how are you going to be smart? So pretend I'm Mother Nature and I think, well, how am I going to make these guys smart? If I build every contingency between events into their genome, that's going to take me millions of years. So can I do something else? And the answer was, yeah, make the organism very immature when it's born. Give it lots and lots of immature neurons and let it tune itself up to the environment. And that's basically what happened. But the downside. If you're a very immature organism, you're a very vulnerable. And you're vulnerable to all those reptiles who, you know, can sprint around right from birth. So the, the problem was solved evolutionarily by changing the circuitry of the female mammalian brain so that it extends her care for herself to her care for the other. And that is the huge genetic change that brings about this whole suite of effects that we think of as sociality. And the, the, the case of the voles bonding to each other as mates, that's just a small genetic change that takes place on this basic platform of major genetic changes. So it's, a, it's an amazing story because it means that all those evolutionary biologists who used to clock up all these models of altruism and so forth, if they'd known about the brain, they wouldn't have wasted their time. <laughs> but as it was, they kind of did because they didn't realize that it all had to do with, I mean, altruism was kind of a byproduct, if you like, of this more important thing from nature's point of view, which is immature brains can learn. And that was a game changer because then you get cortex, this six-layer thing that only mammals and birds have, and that gets bigger and bigger and bigger. So that now we've got primates who are able to do much more abstract thinking, much more complex sociality uh, than rodents, for example. So it's a great story. Yeah, that's really, really cool. So, I mean, as you're talking, I have thousands and thousands of questions. Oh, <laughs> but um, I guess uh, to start with, I mean, if if advanced learning or advanced knowledge can can help develop morality, how do we explain amoral behavior? Uh, especially, so especially awesome. when I mean, many sociopaths are actually very intelligent. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so that's a wonderful question. And the first part of the answer goes like this. That, of course, all animals, fruit flies, frogs, snakes, us, we all have the circuitry for self-care, for seeing to our own food and warmth and safety and so forth. Now, with mammals, we also get this change so that there is other care. Self-care doesn't go away. <laughs> Um, now, it's true, of course, that um, female mammals with offspring will sometimes really do risky things in order to protect the offspring. But we also see that in mature friendships. But it's also the case that individuals still do have their own circuitry for self-care. So that never goes away. And so there's always... And this is, I think, what the great writers and, more, and, and dramatists and musicians have always understood, is that there will always be a kind of conflict between orienting to self and orienting to others, sort of case by case by case. And, of course, how much we orient to others and how much sacrifice we're willing to take on varies hugely across the population. And that may vary, not just because of the basic platform you're born with, but also because of the norms that you learn from your social group. And so there's going to be a huge amount of variability. And some people are not going to read others very well or are not going to feel sympathy for others very much. 
Um, and that may just be a fact of, you know, how they're put together. Um, I don't say how they're hardwired because it, it is affected by learning. And there's some evidence regarding sociopaths to the degree that we know very much and we don't. Uh, there's some evidence that those who really do behave badly actually had terrible, abusive and neglectful childhoods. So we, we know from rat studies, too, that if the babies are neglected or the babies are abused, they grow up with, shall we say, social problems. Mm -hmm. the, the little female pups who are abused and neglected, when they grow up, do not make good mothers. They neglect their babies. They don't really care. They're not, and so on. So we know that environment has a huge effect. That was going to be my next question. What role does environment play, and you know, where does where does the whole nature versus nurture argument yeah. go with this information? It looks like the 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 sort of default setting is that the the mother and the offspring are very close, and as long as there is nurturing and loving and cuddling, that the proper circuitry develops. But it's very interesting that, that it's got to be the behavior and the, and the interactions have to be there. Right. And we know from rat studies that if they're not there, then you get differences in the brain between those that got the nurturing and those that didn't get it. So there's behavioral differences, but there's also differences in the brain itself that, that we think we can see. So how much so of... We don't really know how to divide nature, nurture, and all that sort of stuff um, because so much of gene expression even depends on environment, depends on the stimulus. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess how much of, of our own moral code, if you will, is something mm. that we as, as an individual, as, as, mm. as a unique being, decide ourselves? Versus very little, I think very little. So the kind of the way I see it is that there's sort of a two part story. And the part of the story I've given you is what I call the platform for caring. Just want to be together, to enjoy social behavior, to feel sadness at the other's plight and so forth. But the other part of the story, and this also has to do with old structures um, below cortex is where we learn social norms. And so we pick up often sort of without trying and maybe unconsciously or implicitly, we pick up the local ways of doing things, the conventions, the norms, the laws of, of our group. And then we, I mean, this is sort of the way we're put together. And then we express those. And dogs and wolves do it too. And so... I think I, I mentioned this story in Brain Trust, but I'll tell you, I'll tell it again because it's rather a good one. When uh, I usually walk the dogs on the golf course and I've trained our first set of golden retrievers never to go into the sand traps, never to go on the greens. And that took a little bit of doing because the greens are kind of subtle, right? Sand traps, that's obvious. All right. So our first pair, one of them dies. We've only got old Max. We get two new pups. And I'm going to take the three of them, old Max and the pups, onto the golf course. They follow him. They do what Max does. I never had to train the new pups not to go in the sand traps and not to go on the greens. And to this day, and now they're 10 years old, they don't do that. Because they picked it up and they, they picked it up in such a way that their brains must have sort of embodied it as, this is a really important norm, guys. And so I think that kind of norm learning is really, really important. And it's essential for uh, the sort of social lives that, that we have. Now, of course, it's really interesting also that in humans and in some primates, we can see that when conditions change, norms may change. When social conditions change, then sometimes humans start thinking, hey, we could do this in a better way. Let's, and then whatever it is, you know, let's have a tax so that we can pay for the bridge mm -hmm. or whatever it happens to be. 
And um, but when ecological conditions change, when climate changes, or when there is shortage of food, or when things have to be done in a different way, we can see in other animals too that they adjust and their norms change. So part of what I am working on right now is what we know norm acquisition and how it changes through through our development. Mm. That sounds really cool. So what can you tell us about that at this point? Well, I think that we know that the these subcortical structures, the basal ganglia, are very important for norm learning. Uh, we know that the links to cortex are absolutely critical also. But we don't really know as much about the nature of, of mechanism as, I guess, you know, we, we would like to. But... We all derive huge satisfaction from social approval. And social disapproval bothers us. And we find ways of maybe finding a group where the kinds of things we like to do are approved of and not disapproved of. And that we are intensely social and always being tuned up um, by by the nature of sort of the, the, the social milieu. Mm -hmm. And if norms sort of, uh, if, if a certain kind of um, breaking of the law is recognized as okay in a group, it just spreads like wildfire. It's very interesting. We, even with, when, when people don't talk about it, they just pick it up and it spreads. Very and we know about clothes and about all kinds of things, right? Right. But, I mean, when I was an adolescent, you know, one person would get a certain, oh, I don't know, thing, and suddenly everybody's got it. Everybody has to have it. We have to, you know, conform to the norm. Right. And we derive huge reassurance from that. And we find being ostracized from the group incredibly painful, as does my dog. He misbehaves. I throw him out of the house. Oh, ears go down, tail goes down. He doesn't do it again. That's really fascinating. So can we expect a, another book on this soon? Well, I, yeah, I think. Okay. I think because I, I, it, it is so fascinating. And, and sociality is not just kind of an incidental part of our lives. Right. It's so essential to our lives. Oh, it is. I mean, that's part of our primal makeup is to be part it of that, that tribe. And in, yep. in evolutionary and survival terms, if, if you were ostracized from that tribe, it meant you your, were yeah, your, your ability to survive was greatly threatened. Greatly reduced. Yeah. yeah. So, so we're and wired. And shown in wolves and baboons and mm -hmm. chimpanzees, and they derive huge safety and value from living in a group. And we, of course, do too. Right. Yeah. We, we are <laughs> wired. we get annoyed with each other from time to time. Yeah. Yeah. So, Pat, where can our listeners find more of you? Well, um, there are books on Amazon, and the most recent one, the one that... Um, I went on the Colbert Report for was touching a nerve. That was great fun, by the way. Yeah, how, how, how much fun was that? Oh, it was just amazing. <laughs> I mean, I had watched him for years, and I had admired him so much because he's, he's so smart but also so funny and so capable of seeing so many sides at once. And so when the invitation came, I mean, I just about fell off my chair. I thought, this can't be real. Somebody's <laughs> playing a joke. Anyway, it was great. Um, so that's on YouTube. And so you can see that. And there's lots of things on YouTube. Um, but Touching a Nerve is the book. You can get that uh, in the usual book places. And the one before that, which focuses more on morality, is, is Brain Trust. But there is a large chapter in, in Touching a Nerve on morality and neuroscience, what we, what we do and don't know. So we'll have links to all of that. We'll, each book individually, the, the Colbert Report um, video, we'll put those links on optimalperformance.com so folks can see the video version of this. But if, if you had to give people a, a starting point, maybe a first book to pick up of yours, where would you say is the best place to kind of jump in? I think Touching a Nerve. Okay. Because the first book, that was 1986. And, and it was, in many ways, a very technical book. That was the book called Neural Philosophy. 
And it, but it's a pretty hard slog because basically I was sort of making the case for saying that neuroscience can address and can inform these traditional philosophical questions about consciousness and the nature of knowledge and choice and free will. Neuroscience is going to have something to say about these things. So, so it's kind of, I mean, people tell me it's kind of heavy going. So, so, but I think touching a nerve is a good place to start. Okay, great. Yeah. Now, before we let you go, Every guest on our show has to answer this question. We want to know your top three tips to live optimal. Mm. Well, now, that's very interesting. Um, I think to play is important. We talked about that. I think to, to have a thing like meditation and where you do also spend part of your meditative time kind of reflecting too on where you are and where thing, things are going and and so forth. Um, and I guess then it's sort of, you know, follow your passion and um, and maybe don't take yourself too seriously. Those are awesome. I love it. <laughs> okay. So Pat, this has been way too cool. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you. Thank you. This has been a great pleasure for me. Good, good. Yeah. Uh, for our listeners, make sure you guys go to OptimalPerformance.com. You can see the video version and get all of the links, videos, show notes, uh, books. I, I think I took more notes than uh, than I've ever taken. So hopefully oh, we'll have a, well, hopefully a- <laughs> I'm going to need a walk after this <laughs> to, <laughs> to, to let my brain process all this. <laughs> have a little nap. <laughs> see, I, I was paying attention. So, yes. uh, um, but we'll have all the, uh, the links and I, I know you threw out a whole lot of names and, and cases and things like that. We'll try to put a lot of those links in so our listeners can follow that if they want more information. Uh, and of course links to your books, um, and, and things like that. So people can follow up with you as well. Uh, yeah. for you guys listening, thanks a lot for tuning in and we will talk to you guys next Thursday. Start optimizing your mental and physical performance. Optimize yourself.